this hooked up. We're going to be in, uh, looking at chapter 26, if you guys want to turn over there. And uh, we are in what's uh, called Holy Week, which is really the last week of our Savior's life. And we're looking at uh, basically uh, the middle of the week. Uh, Bible scholars are kind of putting this text in um, basically the Wednesday night to Thursday night time frame of uh, Jesus' last week on earth. So Wednesday evening is kind of the preparation for the Passover uh, with the disciples, and then Thursday evening is the actual Passover meal or the Last Supper that Jesus has uh, with his disciples. And so we're going to be looking at Matthew 26, if you'll turn over there uh, with me now, and we're going to read our passage before we begin. So Matthew 26, and we will start in verse 17. 17, yep, 17. So why don't we all stand up as we read God's word, and, uh, and then we'll begin. Verse 17, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man. And tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it. And gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, They went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's end the reading of God's perfect and timely word. You guys can take a seat. All right, so let's see who's paying attention this morning as we began our worship service. There is a Bible verse that is often quoted uh, many times, and it starts like this. I want you to finish it. Greater love has no one than this. Good. A man lays down his life for his friends. It was for our preparation for worship, if you guys remember. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. See, laying down one's life or sacrificing one life for another is almost universally accepted as one of the most honorable and courageous things that one can do for another. That kind of spans over almost every culture 
every group, whatever it is, it is the most honorable and loving thing that somebody can do. Whether it's a soldier who jumps on a grenade to save his buddy in the foxhole, or it's maybe uh, civilians who decide that, that their life is not as valuable as the lives of others who are going to um, be taken if a terrorist drives a plane into their city. And so they're going to take that plane down. Sacrificing one's life for the sake of another is one of the most honorable and courageous acts of love. And what we're going to see this morning is because Jesus is this sovereign and sacrificial king, that we should take heart and be encouraged by his provision of himself for us. Him giving of himself for people like you and me. And we're going to see this played out in a variety of ways. But Matthew, as he presents it to us, he talks about the preparation for the Passover. And then he talks about the prediction of Judas's betrayal. And then finally, the giving of the Lord's Supper, what we celebrated last week, which we do once a month. And so first, let's look at um, what Matthew talks about as the preparation for the Passover. The preparation for the Passover. I don't know about you guys, but when I think about many times in my life, I question kind of the sovereignty of God a lot of times. I doubt it. His being in control. Something doesn't happen the way that I thought it should happen, or something doesn't happen the way that I want it to happen, and I start asking questions. Or I start saying, God, I don't know if you're really in control. Maybe a medical bill comes in the mail like it did the other week, and I thought it was supposed to be paid by insurance, but they're saying they're not going to pay it. And I start to question, God, are you really in control? Or maybe it's a major problem comes up with your car. And after it, it, you know, it's one after another after another. And you get these bills and you say, God, are you really in control of this? I mean, I needed my car to be working. And yet all these things keep messing up with it. What's going on? Or maybe another one from more recently in my life. I'm trying and trying and trying to fix my wife's cell phone, and I cannot figure out how to fix that blasted cell phone. And yet, I wonder, God, are you really in control? See, we ask that question a lot of times. Is God sovereign? Is he really sovereign? I know it says it in the scriptures, but it's hard for me to believe it sometimes with the things that go on in my life. Well, thank God for various scriptures that he gives us to remind us of the truth of his being in control. His being truly sovereign over all things, working all things according to his plan and according to his will. Because we need that reminder over and over and over again. Because we are so prone to forget that. We are so prone to forget that he is on the throne. And to believe that. Well, verse 17, it sets up the scene for us today. It says, the first day of unleavened bread. See, the disciples and Jesus are about to celebrate one of the high holy days of the Jewish religion, Passover. And the disciples are wondering, where are we going to have this meal? Now, I don't know about you, but I did not grow up in a Jewish home. Uh, Sadly, Dave is not here this morning to stand up and kind of tell us about Passover, uh, but he probably wouldn't want to do it anyways. Um, But Dave, for example, one of the guys in our congregation, grew up Jewish, became a Christian. Uh, But I I did not grow up in a Jewish home. And so I wondered, for example, you know, I've always heard about Passover, but what 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 goes on at a Passover meal? What is it all about? Well, let's give a little refresher about that because it's going to set up our text 
for today. Remember last week, Pastor Santo brought us back to Exodus 12. And you guys can write that down and look at it later. But Exodus 12, at the end of the, the, um, the almost the nine, ten plagues, um, in which the people of God are, are about to leave the slavery of Egypt. God is trying to get their attention. The last plague is the killing of the firstborn. The killing of the firstborn. God is making a way for his people to be passed over, for that not to happen to them. And so remember last week we talked about them saying, look, you have to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost. And then when the angel of death comes by, you will have your child spared. Well, in Exodus 12, uh, basically the Passover, it is supposed to be a perpetual or ongoing reminder of God's deliverance of God's salvation, of God making a way so that their child didn't uh, uh, die from that last plague and that they would be delivered under from the bondage of slavery. Well, Exodus 12 also lays out some of the specifics of the feast for us. It was to last for seven days. The first uh, day is the Passover meal where they sacrificed the lamb, roasted the lamb on a fire, and ate it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And then they also ate it very quickly uh, to remind them about the original Passover where they were preparing to escape Egypt. So Exodus 12, I want to read two verses for us. Verses uh, 12 and tw- or, sorry, 26 and 27, it says this. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And so this was to be an ongoing reminder of Jesus' goodness and grace to his people, his provision for them every single year. This is the background, remembering God's mercy, remembering his grace, remembering his deliverance. And so that's the backdrop to the Passover as Jesus and his disciples are celebrating it. But I think the main point that God wants us to see here in the preparations of the Passover here is that God is in control of even the smallest details of our lives. Even as the Son of Man is going to die, he has set his face to Jerusalem. He has gone there knowing that he will die. And the disciples' world is about to be turned upside down. But it's as if if he is saying to them, this is all a part of the plan, guys. This is all a part of the plan. Don't fear. Because things are going to happen in a few days that are going to turn your world upside down. But you've got to remember that I am in control. How many times do we need that same reminder in our lives? And how many times is the Lord so gracious to give us that same reminder that he is in control, that he knows what's going on in the details of our lives? I was reminded of this actually when I was uh, going to meet Sean last week. Uh, I was going to meet Sean last week and I kind of left the house late because it was the last snowstorm of the year. I was playing with my kids. We were playing a snowball fight, making a quick snowman. But I was late, and so I started, you know, going uh, down to see him, uh, meet him at the IHOP, and, uh, and I was freaking out because I was, I was going to be late, and guess what? The gas was almost empty. I mean, like, almost really, really empty, and I was going all the way out to Hamilton to meet him, 
And, and as I was going out there, I was like, where's the gas station? I need a gas station like bad, like, like a second ago. I need a gas station. And, and all, all this was happening, and I was like, oh, man, my morning's going to be all thrown off. I'm going to be late. I'm going to be stranded on the side of the highway, which I was very, very close to being stranded on the side of the highway because of the gas. And uh, I was like, man, I'm going to mess up the rest of the appointments that I had for the day. And I was just stressing out about the small details of my life. Well, thankfully, I found a gas station, and I, I got, got to meet Sean on time at 930, just like we said, and the rest of my day worked out fine. But it was one of those reminders that, you know, even, you know, even the smallest details of my life, when, when life seems to be spinning out of control, God's got this. He provided a gas station. He provided me getting there. We had a great meeting. I was able to get to the next meeting that I had to get to after that. And it's kind of like God was saying to me, why are you stressing? Why are you stressing about even the smallest details of your life? Why are you speeding? And why, why are you, you know, uh, being so anxious to get to this appointment? When I've got this all under control. Just a reminder of that. Verse 18, it says this. He said, go into this city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And you may be asking yourself a few questions. Well, how did Jesus know that this guy was going to say yes to him saying having the Passover at his house. Did the man find it odd that when the disciples came to ask for the house that he just said yes? What is Jesus doing here? I want to read you a quote from a a commentator, D.A. Carson. It says this, it is not clear whether Jesus has made previous arrangements or called on the supernatural knowledge. Either way, Jesus was carefully taking charge of this final Passover meal. And what I want us to see here is that Jesus, he not only cares about the small details, but he's in control of the small details. He is clearly in control. No one's hurrying Jesus up or stringing him along like he's a puppet on strings. He is carefully ordaining the the events before and leading up to his death. And he wants his disciples to be encouraged. Remember, Santo talked about this last week, quoting this. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Even in these final events, when it looks like everything is out of control, Jesus is in control. He is ordering these things according to his plan. And he continues to do that in our lives today. And my question for us is that do we believe this? And do we live that way? Do we live live as if he really is working everything according to his perfect and good plan? Do we live believing that nothing takes our Savior by surprise? Not the latest political elections or not the latest news of a state takeover or the news of being laid off from your job because of budget cuts. Nothing takes him by surprise. And therefore, we should take heart and take encouragement in that. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that went to the cross for people like you and me, as we will soon see in this text. Well, this theme kind of carries on throughout our uh, text. And it, and, it, and it continues on as we look at the, the prediction of Judas's betrayal. The second point, the prediction of Judas's betrayal. As the Passover meal begins, the dinner conversation takes kind of an interesting turn towards this topic of betrayal. 
And now betrayal is probably not a, a, a normal dinner topic for us. You know, we don't probably sit at the dinner table and, and Hannah Grace is telling me about how she's going to betray the family. And I'm, I'm affirming that. Maybe it's a, a normal conversation if you're the Carleone family, you know, from the Godfather. Maybe it's, a, a, maybe it's a normal conversation, you know. But think about it this way. It's common when a group of people, particularly, for example, like think about political revolutionaries or a mob or a crime family or a gang, when they are about to face extreme persecution, that there will be kind of a natural weeding out of those that are really not really in it for the, the real reasons and those that are in it for the wrong reasons. The suffering that is about to happen will test a person's character and will and commitment. And the issue of betrayal comes up a lot of times in that. Because those people that said that they were in it, that said that they were a part of the gang or part of that crime family, they weren't really in it. Because when the fire turns up, when the heat turns up, they're out. Out for a better life, out for more comfort, out for more money, out. Betrayal for a better, more comfortable life or money in whatever case it is. Those who betray show that they were never really a part of that group, but in fact, enemies. And the same is true of Jesus and the disciples. Even within the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, there was an enemy within the camp. And Matthew has shown us almost from the beginning of his gospel that there continues to be opposition to the kingdom of God. That Jesus, as he is spreading and building his kingdom, that there is opposition. And that opposition is intensifying as we get towards the cross. It is building and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Those that say, I want to cut down Jesus. I want to stop him from doing what he is doing. It is intensifying. So Jesus in verse 21 says, truly, one of you are going to betray me. There's a lot here, but I really want to zoom in on Jesus' interaction, specifically with Judas. Because Jesus had just said that one of them is going to betray him. And he gives a hint to who it's going to be. But then he gives a warning to that betrayer. And this warning, I think, is so important for us to hear this morning. Especially if we're on the fence in our lives right now, maybe we're trusting in Jesus or maybe we're not trusting in Jesus. Maybe we're, we're just trying to investigate who he is. Or maybe we say we're in clear opposition to him. There is a warning here for us to hear. Verse 24 says this, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Meaning no one can, no one can hurry him up. No one can do what he doesn't want to be done. It's going to happen how he wants it to happen. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. What a statement that is. You would have thought that Judas would have got the picture and said, okay, all right, forget these 30 pieces of silver that I just got. I want to live for you, Jesus. But no, that's not what he does. He continues on with his plot of betrayal for 30 pieces of silver. A day's wage to betray the Son of Man, the Son of God. I'm sure that at times in our own lives that we have traded Jesus for far less. Maybe it's a trashy TV show or a positive opinion of a friend when we should have standed up for something. Or maybe it's a quick look at pornography or other cheap thrills that we might go after. 
which may bring momentary satisfaction, but never bring that true satisfaction that we can only find in Jesus Christ. Don't be too hard on Judas without looking at your own heart. Jesus knows this is going to happen, but still pronounces a curse on the one who is going to do it. He shows the gravity of this. It reminded me of a quote one of my seminary professors used. He said this, he says, God uses sin sinlessly. We just said that God was in control, that he uses all things according to his plan, that his plan is always carried out. And therefore, this must have been a part of his plan, as hard as that might be for us to understand. How can God allow this? Or how can God direct this to happen when his death was so close? We know that God does not endorse sin, but rather he condemns it. And yet this sin was a part of Jesus' plan. Mind-blowing. Judas is still responsible for the thing that he is about to do to Jesus as we are all responsible for all of our actions. And yet remember all throughout Scripture that God being sovereign and our being responsible go hand in hand. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility go hand in hand all over the Scripture. One does not negate the other. And yet what an awful fate awaits those who choose to disown or betray Jesus. For those who sell out for a little bit of money, or for a momentary pleasure, or for some little bit of comfort in this world. That person's punishment will be real. There's a warning for us. Listen to this quote. It's, it's, It's really hard, but it's good. Since Judas is the clearest case of the deliberate rejection of Jesus, he comes to judgment day naked and alone. His punishment will be real and woeful, for he will reap what he sowed, as will all flesh. As will all flesh. Well, Jesus says, you know, one of you guys are going to betray me. Judas ends up asking, am I going to betray you? And Jesus answers yes in the affirmative, you are going to betray me. But remember, lest we get too prideful in and of ourselves that we wouldn't betray Jesus, remember that we all at one point, if we are Christians, We were rejecting Jesus before. That in our sinful flesh, in our fallen state, we rejected Jesus, just like Judas. And we deserve the same thing that Judas ended up getting and will get on that last day. That we deserve the wrath and condemnation of God to be separated from him forever. It is only by his grace that we will not and have not received that same thing. That God has so transformed us so that we would believe in him and follow him and not betray him like Judas did. But even as serious and heavy as this topic of betrayal is this morning, I think planted in this passage is a kernel of hope, a kernel of promise and encouragement for us to keep going. He shows us that even though there were opposition and enemies from all sides, from within the camp and from outside of the camp, that nothing will thwart his plan of redemption. Nothing will thwart his plan of redemption, of going to the cross to save people like you and me. Not even a betrayer inside of his own camp will mess up his plan to go to the cross and to finish the work that he started to accomplish that for people like you and me. His plan will be accomplished 
as we will soon find out in the, in the later chapters of Matthew's gospel. But there is a warning here for people in this world. Those that are rejecting Jesus, those that are partying it up, living it up, saying forget you or, or I'll, I'll live for you later. There is a warning here. Watch out for the same fate as Judas. Well, just like the Passover was given as a sign and a symbol for God's people to remember his deliverance and salvation, Jesus, he gives his disciples and his church a new sign to remember his work on the cross, and it is the Lord's Supper. Remember, we looked at verses 26 through 29 as we celebrated the Lord's Supper last week. We often read one of the Gospels as it talks about uh, the, the institution of the Lord's Supper when we celebrate it. This is the record of the establishing of this sacrament for us. And for us to, to, to rightly take a, a partake of it, to do it in remembrance of him. But what I want us to see here, I think Matthew wants us to see this, is that it's really important for us to remember when Jesus is giving this sacrament to the church. When is he doing it? He's doing it during the Passover. During the Passover. And Jesus doesn't do things uh, haphazardly or willy-nilly, but he does them for a specific point and a specific purpose. There's obviously great connection between the two feasts of the Passover and the Lord's Supper. See, what Jesus is doing here, he's ushering in the new covenant, and he is replacing the Passover with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, yet doing so on the Passover to talk about some of the important connections between the two. See, what the Passover did was it foreshadowed the sacrifice of Christ. That spotless lamb that was sacrificed every year, it foreshadowed what Jesus would do on the cross for us. But what the Lord's Supper does is it remembers and looks back on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so there's a connection point there. So it was fitting that Jesus celebrated the Passover at the time in which his own sacrificial death was about to take place, which would make it possible for sinners like you and me to be passed over from the judgment and wrath of God, which we all deserved and which was all impending for us before we became Christians. Talk about divine appointment and God's sovereignty over the calendar. He did that for a point. He did that for a purpose, to remind us of himself. With that in mind, let's look back at uh, verses 26 through 29. Look at there with me. Um, this it records the words of institutions we talk about. These verses... Uh, are something that um, kind of unites us in one way with Christians all over all different kind of denominations all over the world, Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, etc. But how these groups understand and apply it are very different. Some see it as a mere memorial, right? We just look back on it. We just remember what Jesus did for us. Others, like the Roman Catholic tradition, see it as an actual re-sacrificing of the physical body and blood of Jesus each time, and still others in other ways. And we don't really have time to get into that, but I just want to mention it because I think it's important to say that even though it's something that unites us in one way, and that we all celebrate the Lord's Supper, it actually, we understand it in very different ways. And if you have questions about that, Pastor Santo and I would love to be able to talk to you about that more in depth at another time. 
But I don't want us to miss with this familiar text why God gave it to us and why Matthew put it here in his Gospels. See, whereas in the previous paragraphs, uh, Matthew shows that opposition to Jesus and the ushering in of his kingdom, he talks about really the, the enemies of it. Now he's focusing on the friends, on the allies, the core team. It is an encouragement to the first disciples then and now us as his disciples that though things will look very bad because of Jesus' death on the cross, he is still in control and gives us this sacrament for our edification, for our encouragement, for our strengthening, for our keeping up the good fight. See, what Jesus does here for his friends, for his followers, is that he gives us himself the greatest gift of all. Remember the words that he says, this is my body, this is my blood. How beautiful that is that he gives himself to us. Think about that. What other religion, what other worldview says that? That God came and gave himself up for us so that we could be saved. He's not saying, hey, do all this like we were talking about earlier. Do all these good works and you will live because we can never live that way. We can never be perfect. And yet God came and lived a perfect life, born as a man, lived as a man, the perfect life, and went and was sacrificed for people like you and me. He gave himself for us, him for me, him for you, him for us. It reminded me of a story that I, I came across recently. I can't remember where I came across it, but there was a, a family with two boys, and one of the boys was sick. And uh, I don't know what with, but it was a pretty serious sickness. And he needed a blood transfusion of some kind. But the only person that matched the blood that the, brother, the boy needed was actually his brother. And so the father had to go to the brother and say, look, your brother needs this transfusion and you're the only one that can give it to him. And I think they were both pretty young. And so you can imagine, you know, you know I'm, I'm, me going down to Caleb, my son, and saying, Caleb, you got to do this for your sister. What must be going through his mind? Well, it gets time for it to happen. And uh, the brother says, yes, I'll do this for my brother and uh, help save his life. And he, he gives a transfusion. And, uh, and, and the brother who's giving the transfusion says, okay. And he, I think he says to the nurse or to the dad, okay, when am I going to die? Because he thought he was, had to give his life up for his brother. He didn't know that he was just giving blood to his brother. But he thought, and he was ready as a little boy to give his life up for his brother. He said, okay, dad, or okay, nurse, when is it time for me to die? Because that's what he thought he had to do. He was ready to sacrifice himself for the sake of his brother. And yet, how is that a reminder for us about how Jesus came and sacrificed himself? He gave of his own body being broken for us as we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. And his blood shed for us as we drink that. We remember the sacrifice of Jesus. But you know what Matthew also does is he shows us a clear contrast between the enemies of Jesus and the friends of Jesus. And he also shows us the fate of them. His enemies, like Judas, and remember, like those who were first killed on that first Passover, 
And those who uh, even now and, and until Jesus comes back, those, those that are betraying Jesus or unbelievers, what they will face is wrath and judgment. And Matthew is bringing that out for us, that they will face wrath and judgment for all times. But what do the friends get? The disciples. Those disciples there at that first meal, those disciples now today like you and me, those disciples like on that first night that put that blood on their doorposts, what do they receive? They receive Jesus himself. They will face deliverance and salvation, strengthening and encouraging, and so many more gifts because of Jesus. Listen to this quote. I think it's one of the most powerful ones uh, that you'll hear today. We all sin, not just Judas, and we are all liable to death. Jesus went to the cross to pay that wage for us. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as a symbol so the disciples would understand. And here's the the good part. The weaknesses of the men at the meal established the need for the meal. The sins of the men at the meal required the death of the host of the meal, if any were to be redeemed. Let me read that one more time. I found it so powerful. The weakness of the men at the meal established the need for the meal. The sins of the men at the meal required the death of the host of the meal, if any were to be redeemed. The host of the Lord's Supper had to die in order for those men that partook of it to be redeemed. That's what the Lord's Supper reminds us of. When we do this every month, we remember that Jesus, the host of the first Lord's Supper, had to die for people like you and me. Because at one time, we rejected Jesus and were living a life in total opposition to him, running after every single idol that is possible to think about. We said that they were better than Jesus, and they destroyed our lives, and yet we continue to give our lives to them, our efforts to them, our energies to them. Until one day, Jesus grabbed each and every one of our hearts and opened up our eyes so we could see Jesus for who he really is. That he was the son of God who came and died for people like you and me. So the question for each of us is, which camp are you in this morning? Are you the friend and the disciple? Or are you the enemy? Are you sure you want to be in that camp? I think inherent in this text is just a a warning for us to say, don't miss the feast. Don't miss the feast. Yes, the feast of the Lord's Supper that we celebrate each month. Don't miss that. But don't miss the feast that will come on the last day. The Lord's Supper is also pointing to something in the future. The marriage supper of the Lamb. When, When Jesus comes back and makes all things right, when he takes away all tears and all suffering and all death and restores everything and makes it new, we will have that last supper with him. And it will be a joyous feast. We don't want anybody to meet that or miss that. Not us, not our wives or husbands, not our kids, not our family members or friends or co-workers. We don't want any of them to miss it. 
And we want to be a part of warning them to say, nothing can compare with Jesus. No amount of money, no amount of comfort, no amount of success, no job, no person, nothing can beat Jesus. So come and be satisfied with what he offers himself. Well, we all know that our time is short on this earth. Some of us have been reminded of that recently, the shortness of life, that we are not guaranteed another moment, another minute here on this earth. We have no idea what tomorrow will hold, let alone the rest of today. But we know one thing, that one day it will be game over. There will be no restart of the game or or getting a second chance. We know that one day it will be game over. Jesus has made this painstakingly clear as we have looked at the Gospel of Matthew. There will be a day of reckoning. A day in which we will stand before Jesus Christ. He is coming back for his people. Those washed clean by his blood. He alludes to that very clearly in verse 29. Saying that we will have this feast. His supper anew though. In his father's kingdom one day when he returns. But only for those who by his blood shed and body broken have been forgiven of their sins. Those will be the people invited to the feast. It reminded me of an old hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood by William Cowper. It says this, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains how many times have i heard that sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains washed clean by the blood of jesus christ and the body broken for people like you and me i just want to ask is this you this morning is this you this morning Another song came to mind as I was finishing up the sermon this week, one that we often sing, and the refrain of it is, don't you want to be a part of the kingdom? And every time I sing that song, I just think about the people in my mind, maybe the people that I'm reaching out to in the city or the people that I have back at, you know, where I grew up or, or friends or family that don't know Jesus. And I just imagine myself saying that to them, don't you want to be a part of the kingdom? There's so much love in the kingdom, so much joy in the kingdom, so much peace in the kingdom. You get Jesus himself. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of this kingdom? And this text is screaming at us to everyone, not just here, but all over the world. Don't you want to be a part of this kingdom? And it ends, come on, come on, everybody. And that's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for every single person that we interact with as a church in this city, in this region, in this world, that they would be a part of the kingdom of God, that they would enjoy and partake of the feast that he has put before us, that they would not face the same fate as Judas, but they would, like the disciples who trusted in him, would be with him on that last day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for uh, just just being able to walk through a whole gospel um, for this past year, year and a half that we've been studying it. Thank you that as we've walked through it, we've learned more and more about our Savior. 
We've learned more and more about his perfect life for people that just continue to screw up. That you never screwed up, Jesus. You never made a mistake. You never sinned at all. And yet you went to the cross to take our punishment that we so uh, justly deserve. You took it for people like me and people like us. And that's what the Lord's Supper remembers. That's what we do when we eat of that bread and we drink of that that blood. Jesus, we pray this morning that you would draw us closer to you, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would encourage us to go back out and to live for you wherever you've put us. God, that we would be ready and willing to share the beautiful truth of the gospel with anyone that comes our way. God, that we would be walking around with that refrain in our head, don't you want to be a part of the kingdom? That we would pray for them and love them and share with them the gospel and share with them a life transformed by you, Jesus. We thank you for this, Lord, and we just pray as we uh, go out, Lord, that you would remind us of your goodness and grace and uh, help us to live faithfully for you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.